How do we find the balance between motivating a child and indulging him? The Times' financial columnist, Ron Lieber, will be here to talk about his new bestseller, The Opposite of Spoiled. When we were teenagers, you and I, we lusted after a Sony Walkman and our own camera and a private line in our home and our own television set and a personal computer all our own. Now, sixth graders walk around with a smartphone that does all of those things and more. So, of course, we feel that acutely. What exactly do we mean by Islamic finance? Author Harris Irfan will be here to talk about Heaven's Bankers. It's a way of financing which is based on certain ethical principles, and the basics of those principles are around justice and fairness and equality. Alexandra Alter will have notes from the publishing world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Ron Lieber joins us now. He is the Times personal finance columnist. Hi, Ron. Hello. So you wrote a book that's about a topic relevant to so many of us, um, me included. The book is called The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Um, I am eager to find out exactly what I'm doing wrong and what I should be doing. I love your cover, and I feel like uh, I get the sense this is part of the book. You've got three jars, a give jar, a save jar, and a spend jar. What's that all about? Well, those jars do a couple of things for us. I mean, they are the basic representation of how I encourage people to make their kids split up their allowance into a save jar, a spend jar, and a give jar. I like those jars for two reasons. First of all, they are a representation of how we as adults generally budget. So it's sort of a training wheels for adult budgeting. But I also like those jars are stand-ins for all of the values and virtues and character traits that add up to the opposite of spoiled. Um, saving is about patience and um, spending and spending wisely is about uh, modesty and, and thrift uh, and prudence and giving is about generosity and gratitude. One of the things that I feel like is a topic of conversation among parents today is the difference between the 70s and 80s and today in terms of just the quantity of stuff that kids get. And I'm curious how much you you look at that in the book. So just for example, in the 70s and 80s, a balloon, which I think was a lot more expensive, was something very special to get. You did not get it in every store. You got it maybe at the car wash, maybe at the shoe store if you were lucky. And today, kids sort of have balloons all the time. And that's just one example. Is that a reality? Is it because all this stuff is inexpensively made in China that it's just there now? And how do you kind of combat that abundance. Yeah, I mean, I think about it both in terms of stuff and in terms of time. So the best example in terms of stuff is to think about the fact that when we were teenagers, you and I, we lusted after a Sony Walkman and our own camera and a private line in our home and our own television set and a personal computer all our own and a modem, and most of us got very few of these things, if any. Now, sixth graders walk around with a smartphone that does all of those things and more. So, of course, we feel that acutely. Uh, the time thing you know, has to do with the fact that the world and kids' world in particular sort of conspires against waiting now. They don't have to wait for the television right. commercials. They don't have to wait uh, for the, the movies and blockbuster in line. You know, It all just gets sucked down via Netflix. Uh, they may not even have to wait to use the bathroom because 
homes have more bathrooms than they used to and kids don't share as much as they used to. And so, you know, we have to make deliberate attempts to pause, to give them reasons to wait, to give them cause to wait, because waiting is a big part of being a grown-up and doing important things like saving for retirement. Um, It strikes me that this is a problem. This is an issue that's not just for upper class people, not just for upper middle class, but really even middle class and working class people because the toys, all of the stuff has become relatively less expensive uh, and therefore easier to acquire. I also wonder if parents are roped in or won over by this argument that in order to educate their children, they need to provide them with an enriched environment. And they think, okay, I've got to get my kid all these learning toys. I have. They have to have manipulatives. They have to have this kind of thing and all of these art supplies. And again, we didn't have all that stuff 20, 30 years ago. Does that negatively impact children as well as you know the positive educational impact? The sociologists refer to this uh, as the concept of concerted cultivation, right? We're trying so hard to create this environment of enrichment, both in terms of the things that they do like every single day after school and on the weekend, so many extracurricular activities and the stuff that we actually provide for them. I totally get where the instinct is coming from. I tried to find institutions that actually tack against that. And there's a whole story in the book about summer camp and overnight camp. And look, this is its own form of privilege, right? It costs money fair bit of money to go to overnight camp. But I went looking for the camps, not the ones that have the spring-loaded aerobics floors and the water skiing boats, but the ones that deliberately strip all of that away. Literally no power, no running water except in the mess hall, nowhere to bathe except naked in the lake. As its own kind of educational experience. Right. I mean, this is, uh, you know, has its own sociological term. Um, It's referred to as symbolic deprivation, which is what many parents, particularly parents who have more than what they need, try to do. Because every time you say no to something you could actually afford, it's a form of symbolic deprivation. And so many parents choose to send their kids to camps like that and not the fancier ones, because in those camps, the only fun you have is the fun that you make together. The camps don't come with any sort of cultivated or curated experience. What they do at night uh, when they're out on the lake, literally on an island at some of these camps with no power, is whatever it is that they manage to invent in the moment. And that is an enriching experience in its own right. And then they go home to their fancy suburbs in Connecticut and Westchester. But do the kids, did you talk to kids who'd gone to these camps or the parents of those children and did they find that it was a formative experience and and the right kind of experience? You know, I didn't even need to ask because I arrived at one of these camps uh, on the day that one of the older boys uh, at a camp called Birch Rock in Maine uh, was getting ready to swim what they call the whale. Uh, The whale is a five-mile-plus swim around the lake that the camp is on. The boys spend 10 years getting ready to do their whale. They spend all summer that summer training for it. And as I walked down to the edge of the lake, all of the boys, all of the camp, and a whole bunch of alumni were gathered there cheering for Gabe as he was coming in from his three-and-a-half-hour whale. And it was one of the most moving things I've ever seen. I literally started to cry. I hadn't even met any of these people yet. And it was just incredible, the environment of community that had been created around a swim of all things. But it was sort of like the culmination of his entire camp experience, not just that summer, but you know, 10 years or whatever it was of time that 
Gabe had spent at the camp. It really was amazing. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of experience I think we all want to shoot for for our kids. And it doesn't involve a lot of money. Right. It doesn't involve a lot of stuff. It just involves doing something amazing. And getting rid of all that stuff. The sound that you hear in the background is me scribbling down that uh, camp name, which I imagine other listeners are doing too. Money, I think, is like sex with parents in that they try to avoid discussing it with their kids or discussing sort of the big things that, I don't know, maybe we ought to be discussing or we should our children know how much money that we're making? Should they know, you know, this is what our mortgage payment is? Should you, when you are weighing a decision about whether to buy a child something, should you mention, you know what, we just can't afford that? Or do you, are you supposed to couch that in other terms in order to, people think, spare them of the anxiety or feeling responsible? How do you approach all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. And it's harder than it is with sex because I think that we sort of begrudgingly understand that if we don't talk about sex, that bad things will actually happen to our kids, right? It's sort of a biological happening. If they don't understand it, they're going to go and do things right. uh, that may actually get them into a lot of trouble. With money, we give ourselves an out, maybe because of the own shame we feel about what we have or what we don't have or what we know or what we don't know or how we behave with our money and we're worried that our kids will find us out. But I think we're a little naive if we think that we can shield or protect our kids from all of this stuff. Um, they sense it. They overhear our arguments. They read our mail. They look at our tax returns. They Google our address on the internet. And they come to all of the wrong conclusions by desperately trying to piece all of this information together about this thing, money, that is a source of incredible power and mystery, right? So to me, actually the best way to protect them, to arm them for what they are getting ready for, which is a six-figure decision about college while right. they're still a teenager, the best way to protect them uh, is to arm them with all of the information we possibly can uh, to help them begin to make better choices for themselves. Does that mean saying like, hey, mommy makes X, Y, and Z, and dad, and what, what age do you think you should give that information? I think kids are entitled to know how much money their parents make and what their net worth is, but not until they are ready. And they are not ready until at least 10 years have gone by where you've been doing allowance for four years. And in the meantime, in math class, they're getting used to the bigger numbers. And then four years of talking about what you're spending in the house. You know, maybe you start with groceries. Maybe you give them the responsibility for the electric bill. Then maybe you upgrade them to planning family vacations. Eventually, they are going to know how much your home is worth because they are going to Google your address and they are going to get the Zillow estimate or the street easy number. They just are, right? So you might as well tell them and make sure they understand that you probably have a mortgage too and you don't really right. own the home, right? It's and interesting on how on. They, the answers to all these questions really see, you know, have changed since the internet and that kids have so much access to the information. One of the earlier questions that parents often get, and depending on where their kids are and where they are financially, um, is of some variation of, you know, mommy, are we rich or daddy, are we poor? And I think that most parents, maybe the gut instinct is to say, oh, you know, we're comfortable enough or we're OK, that that the way that same, you know, the same way that most Americans will say they're middle class. I mean, how do you how are you supposed to answer those questions? I think you answer that question with another question, which is why do you ask? And it's not an accusation. It's meant to convey that we honor their curiosity, that we know it's their job to figure out how the world works and that they're trying and we appreciate that. Uh, but quite often those big cosmic questions, are we rich, are we poor, they come from having overheard a grown-up conversation and somehow misconstrued it or some kind of warped conversation that's having uh, – that's being had on the playground about you know which person's parent is a zillionaire, right? So they ask these questions but what they're really asking is – are we okay? Right. 
You know, are we normal or not? Do we need to worry? Should we be worried, right? Right. And again, we think we can shield them from all of this stuff and therefore they won't have anxiety. It's totally not true. Of course they're going to have anxiety. Money is big and powerful and important. They know about it. They're trying to figure it out. They worry in the same way that we do. It's natural. But conversations, you know, about these kind of things can get so complicated. You could say to a child, well, no, we're not going to buy that because it's too expensive. And then if, let's say, you go ahead and you buy it for a birthday or something, they could say, oh, you know, mommy, I knew that. I know that's really expensive. You shouldn't have spent the money. And then they feel a new kind of guilt and anxiety. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's, see, are there hard and fast rules of what not to say in order to prevent that kind of, you know, the child getting even more anxious with the information? Yeah, I think a lot depends on context. Uh, but most kids have at least a basic understanding of the difference between wants and needs. Um, so you can use that language to explain why you are or are not buying them something, even if you can afford to. Uh, and then you can also explain to them that, you know, even in a particular moment, if something is not an appropriate purchase or an affordable purchase, it may be appropriate or affordable later on after you saved up some money for it and right. made a trade-off. Right, And so if you use the language of trade-offs enough, we're not going to do this now so we can do this later, it all connects into the saving and spending and the giving, too, that they're doing with their own allowance. Okay, you bring up allowance, um, and I want to just uh, talk about that a bit. I don't know if that's the number one question you get asked or probably in the top 10. What should you give for allowance? How do you decide that? Well, with the little ones, I'm not sure it matters quite as much. You want to give them just enough so that They can get some of the things that they want, but not so much that they don't have to make a lot of really hard choices and trade-offs, right? Maybe that's a dollar for every year that they've been alive when you get started at age five or six or seven, and they divide that equally among giving and saving and spending. And then later on, you can do fancier stuff. Maybe when they're 10, you turn over the entire clothing budget for the things that you are willing to buy them, the things that they need, uh, and then you see what kinds of decisions they make on their own with that. Um, I'm going to ask you one other question I imagine you get a lot, which is about the tooth fairy, her brief reign uh, during childhood. Um, What do you do? You give – well, your tooth fairy gives a dollar, let's say a tooth, and your child says, huh, you know, know, so-and-so's tooth fairy gives $10. Yeah, they're all comparing. And as much as I love giving kids money to practice with, this may be an area where you want to opt yourself out of social comparison. And so you can do what our colleague Bruce Filer does with his family. His wife travels a lot for business outside of the United States. She brings home a bunch of international currency and the kids get different coins from different countries when the tooth fairy comes. And so then they get excited about learning about other cultures and maybe they go there someday and, you know, eventually they get to spend maybe a little bit of that money. That's their own thing that nobody else does that's special. I know another family out in the San Francisco Bay Area where the kids get animal teeth, a different one each time. And this too is a special thing. It's something they can talk about. It's something they can compare. But it doesn't become a money contest because we're all going to lose the money contest against the families in Westchester County outside of New York City that put $100 bills under the pillows. This actually happens. I was going to say, did you meet those parents? All right. What's the number one question you get from parents? It's always about allowance. And in particular, it's about the connection between allowance and chores because 80 to 90 percent of families, according to all of the survey research, will say to the kids, you will not get your allowance unless you do the chores. Uh, I actually think you should separate those things, um, if only for a very practical reason, because if you tie the two things together, eventually your smart aleck children will say to you, well, I have enough money right now, so I'm not going to do the chores. And then you're in a pickle. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, okay, last thing. Um, do you have any mm-hmm. other sort of major advice um, that you want to give on a subject maybe that we haven't touched on with regard to raising unspoiled kids? Yeah, some families have trouble articulating why it is that a gift jar is even necessary. You know, kids are naturally generous, except for like a brief moment in toddlerdom when they scratch and bite and take things from one another. They actually do like giving. We're hardwired to be generous um, as a species in general. But, you know, if you're looking for a good way to articulate it in a way that a four or five-year-old can understand, uh, you can just remind them, you know, kids love hearing family stories. And you can remind them that somewhere along the way in the past, maybe even in the present, um, somebody has helped your family, uh, whether yours is an immigrant tale, and most of ours are, uh, whether yours is a story of uh, slavery to freedom, whether yours is a story of uh, running from Hitler, uh, somewhere along the way, somebody helped you too. And it's your job to help other people now because you're lucky enough to have a little bit extra. So much good advice, Ron. Thank you so much. I could ask you 20 other questions, and I probably will at some point. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. The book, again, is The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. This is John Williams, an editor at The Times, and I'm joined by Alexandra Alter, who has news hot off the presses from the literary world. How are you, Alexandra? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, John? Good. What's going on this week? So a new book was announced this morning. It's from Nick Cave, who's better known as a rock star, the front man of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, but he's also a fiction writer. He's published novels in the past, and this new book really caught my attention because he's publishing it in a very unusual way. Uh, it will it, be, is it another novel? This is actually a, an epic poem. It's kind of a narrative poem. He wrote the poetry on um, airsick bags as he was touring the U.S. with his band in 2014, and each kind of poem is dedicated to a city and his impressions of the city and his experiences. And the language is very lovely. Um, but what really struck me was the lengths that he's going to to sort of make this publication a production in itself. First of all, it's only going to be available on a website that he's created called the thesickbagsong.com. That's, That's the, the title of the, of the book and the poem. You can't <laughs> get it on Amazon. You can't get it at a bookstore. You've got to go to this website. And the second thing that he's done, which I don't believe I've seen before in publishing is he's bundled all these formats together into a single purchase that you can get the ebook, the paper book, uh, the print book, which is a very lavish, you know, oyster shell box and everything right, production, yeah. and the audiobook, which he's narrated himself. That's cool. For, for around $44, $40. Um, okay. You have to get it in this sort of package. Huh. So I can't just get the book. You, I just want the oyster shell book. No. It's all coming together. Okay. <laughs> all coming at you together in one giant package. Moreover, he has created a limited edition, which will have, you know, all these bells and whistles like the actual, you know, Arisic bags that he written <laughs> that he wrote the poems on or, or reproductions of them and sort right. of specialized things like threads from his jacket that he was wearing and a vinyl pressed, you know, audio book that's um <laughs> Vinyl audio books—that is the next fetish. That's the next fetish object, and that'll cost you around eleven hundred dollars. Wow, that's a real. So for the Uber Nick Cave fan, there is something, and for the more casual fan, there's something. Right. Well, he does have Uber fans. Exactly. He'll find some takers. Do we know more about the? uh, You said that the poems were based on cities he's been to. Do they sort of bleed together? Is it one long epic poem, or is it more like a collection of poems about different places? You know, it sort of adds up into this this sort of journey that he's that he's. 
taken through the country as he's on tour. Um, but I believe that he wrote them kind of standalone as he was going to different places. What, what's interesting, though, is he's working with a traditional publisher. Canongate is publishing the book. Mm-hmm. And they seem to think, that, you know, this is an interesting experiment as a way to reach out to fans directly and sort of bypass the whole machinery of book selling that, you know, every author and every other publisher uses, all it's the funny, distribution methods. rock stars really seem on the cutting edge of that. I mean, Radiohead did it with music, uh, you know, several years ago and kind of was at the vanguard of selling straight to letting fans list exactly. their price, et cetera. Exactly. Radiohead did it on BitTorrent and they said, you know, fans pay what you want. And, right. you know, in in sort of television, like Louis C.K. tried it. He put, you know, he did extremely well selling his own stuff directly to fans. And actually, Nick Cave is partnering with Radiohead's distribution company. Oh, wow. So they're going to be in charge of getting these products, books out to everybody. He's being a lot stricter about price, though. Definitely not naming no, your own price. <laughs> not even you know, name your own format. You're you getting all of them. You can't your own format. You've sort of, yeah, there's sort of different grades of the package that you can get. But it'll be interesting to see how well this translates into the publishing world. Of course, you know, he's kind of the perfect person to try it out with, with his, you know, built-in fan base. And of course, he's going to go on an elaborate tour for it and everything like that. Do we know why it's, you know, even independent bookstores are not going to have it? Does does he have a reason why he doesn't want it? He's not anti-bookstore, I assume. I assume he's not. And to be honest, I haven't had a chance to interview him yet. They're sort of holding off until the book comes out. It comes out in April, and then he'll be doing some interviews about it. I'm curious, too. I mean, he seems like the kind of person that would support booksellers right. and things. But, but maybe this just keeps the experiment more pure, sort of, you know, finding out whether or not you can do this on a website and have people come to you and, exactly. and, and deal with it. Great. Thanks so much, Alexander. Thanks for having me. Tree don't care what the little bird sings. We go down with the dew in the morning light. Tree don't know what the little bird brings. We go down with the dew in the morning and we breathe it in. I'm joined now by Harris Irfan. He is the author of Heaven's Bankers. Hi, Harris. Hi there. So this book um, is about a subject that I think will be of interest to many listeners because so many of us know nothing about it. Islamic finance, what do we even mean by that? Well, essentially, Islamic finance is a form of ethical finance, if you like. It's, uh, It's a way of financing which is based on certain ethical principles, and the basics of those principles are around justice and fairness and equality. There's a a number of corollaries of that, uh, one of which is that creating money out of money is not allowed, and hence why a lot of people tend to think of Islamic finance as being banking without interest. Uh, But that's actually an end product of the basic uh, fundamental ethical principles of Islamic financing. How else is it different from other forms of finance? Probably the simplest way to describe the fundamental difference is the fact that Islamic finance is about the real economy. And we've been hearing in the last few years uh, about the global financial crisis and how a lot of investment banks were creating these pieces of paper that we call derivatives and creating some very complex and sophisticated financial products, which few people had a really deep understanding of. And actually, when you delved down and peeled away the layers of this onion, you found very little that was tangible underneath. Islamic finance is, um, it aims to finance real economy transactions so that we're always 
aiming to provide a not just a, a financial benefit, but also a real economy benefit. The assets must be real and tangible, underpinning any financial transaction. There must be a societal benefit. Uh, it must be good for people in general. You know, some of the transactions that we see in the conventional financial industry have been described by one uh, particular individual who used to be the chairman of the, the uh, regulatory authority in the United Kingdom. He said many of these transactions are socially useless, and I'm afraid I have to agree with much of that. Uh, many of the transactions that do take place in the modern investment banking community are, um, you know, they, they seem to have very little real economy value. So I think Islamic finance is about creating value, jobs, wealth, and also ensuring that that wealth is you know, appropriately distributed throughout society. Let's put this into very real terms and tell me, how is an Islamic mortgage different from uh, what we would think of as a traditional mortgage? Um, that's a very interesting question. A lot of people have asked me, uh, have, have spoken to me about this and said, well, you know, you Islamic bankers, you know, you, 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 you provide a mortgage which crosses a contract which crosses out the word uh, interest and writes in the word profit and then you charge me more for it. And actually, I have a lot of sympathy with that line of argument. Uh, in reality, the way that the Islamic financier is meant to operate is that the financier is meant to take the risk of that asset and then either rent it to the individual who is effectively the borrower uh, and give the, that individual the option to repurchase the house or to buy that asset and then on-sell it as a merchant rather than as, as a, an institution that merely finances money. So in other words, the, the bank has taken on the real risk of that asset onto its balance sheet and it holds something real and tangible. And I think the fact that it's operating in the real economy space is actually a very different risk proposition to the way that banks currently operate. Because if they're only allowed to have a one-to-one -one relationship between the assets that they hold and the financing that they do, then you know, there's no such thing as a run on the bank. Right. A run on the bank would occur if everybody decided the bank is about to default and they need to get their money out. But of course, a bank has what's called a reserve ratio. It's allowed to lend out a lot more than it actually has in deposits. So the basis of the modern conventional financial economy is quite different to a real asset economy. Um, we should say that you are yourself an Islamic finance banker, an Islam finance banker. What can you invest in and what can you not invest in compared with a, your sort of standard investment banker? Well, we have to avoid... I shouldn't say standard. I should say non-Islamic investment sure. banker. Yeah, we have to avoid uh, industries like uh, alcohol tobacco, things which are harmful to society, arms manufacturing, and so on. Those are the, the very simple, basic uh, industries that we must avoid. I think generally there should be a holistic approach as well, which is this company that I'm investing in or that I'm financing, is it a good company? Does it have good labor practices? Does it have a good environmental policy? You know, how does it treat its customers, its suppliers, its employees? You know, these are the sort of slightly more subjective uh, factors that we take into account when we're financing something. At least that's the theory. You know, whether in practice that actually takes place, that's something else. I think it's the, the Islamic finance industry is a work in progress. Conventional bankers tend to dominate in the Islamic finance industry because they have the technical skill set to be able to execute these transactions. What are the returns like for uh, an Islamic investment fund? Well, surprisingly, in the last few years, uh, during and post the financial crisis, 
in many cases, they've actually been better than conventional funds. And one of the main reasons for that is because conventional funds, equity funds, have typically invested in financial stocks. And, of course, financial stocks have done very badly because, you know, global banks have been invested in these intangible derivative contracts, which, you know, became a failure and, uh, and lost the banks a lot of money. Now, an Islamic fund that was following, uh, you know, Sharia-compliant principles would not have been allowed to invest in those kind of companies or in highly leveraged companies, companies which had a huge amount of debt on their balance sheet. And as a result, in the last several years, they've actually done pretty well. That's not to say that in good times they will underperform. The performance has been at par with conventional funds. So I think there need not be a performance detriment Mm -hmm. to investing in Islamic funds. Is there such a thing as an Islamic hedge fund, or is that a contradiction in terms? Or It's kind of an oxymoron. It's possible to create what I would call an absolute return fund. In other words, a fund that aims to match a particular target, let's just say it's 5% or 10%. But the methods by which that Islamic fund would, hedge fund would operate would be quite different. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be allowed to short stock, in other words, sell stock that it has to borrow in the market because one is not allowed to sell something that one does not legally own. And there are other ways that it can achieve certain absolute returns without adopting the specific techniques that hedge funds adopt. A good chunk of your book is devoted to uh, the history of Islamic finance, which, um, as you point out, goes back to the 7th century and starts with the very interesting fact that Muhammad himself was a successful trader. Well, he was what we call a mudarib. That's a manager of other people's money. And, um, you know, as a merchant, um, he would be granted capital and goods to go out and trade and uh, earn a return for the owner of that capital. Um, and in fact, the, uh, the individuals who came after him, the scholars and theologians and the polymaths who, you know, worked on uh, philosophy and mathematics and astronomy and so on, they also developed on the basic principles and the business principles that Muhammad himself uh, espoused. So they created and developed uh, financial systems, money transfer, for example, or letters of credit or checks. In fact, we get the word check from the Arabic word sak. S-A-double-K. And many of the modern financial systems that we see in place today actually filtered into southern Europe uh, during the Middle Ages at a time when Islamic thought was at at its very height. So many of the entrepreneurial techniques and financial techniques, in addition to, you know, technology and mathematics and so on, filtered down the Silk Route into southern Europe from these Arab and Persian traders. So I think there is a, in, in many senses, there is a a debt that's owed to those philosophers and those individuals who created these systems. Um, you trace um, the course of Islamic finance up through um, Egypt in the 60s, um, the Pakistan in the 80s, um, and then looking at the way in which globalization has kind of changed in the 90s. What's going on now with Islamic finance? Are there trends? Are there current challenges? Well, Islamic finance is, is kind of at a crossroad right now. It has the opportunity to carve its own path and be a genuinely different alternative economic system with its own values and sense of justice and fair play and so on, or it can mimic and replicate the conventional financial system. My fear is that more of the latter is happening right now. And I think that the Islamic finance, the banking industry in particular, has tried to mimic the debt culture of conventional banks. Uh, And particularly that's seen in the types of individuals who work in these banks. A lot of conventional bankers who have come from conventional investment banks are doing good business in Islamic banks. 
Um, so it's kind of like, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, swimming in uh, or playing water polo in football gear. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, with the Islamic banks are trying to operate in a system which governs uh, conventional banks. And I think that's pretty tough. Um, so I don't know where we'll get to ultimately. I'm quite optimistic because when I speak with students of the subject, you know, who are at university studying these things, I see a lot of passion, a drive for change for the better, uh, a wish to uh, close the wealth gap between rich and poor, uh, you know, a wish for a fairer society. I think that gives me a lot of hope that actually ultimately Islamic finance will be true to its ideals. Well, let's end on that very upbeat note then. Um, Harris, thank you so much. Thank you. Harris Irfan is the author of Heaven's Bankers, Inside the Hidden World of Islamic Finance, reviewed this week in the book review's Money Issue. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hey, Greg. Hi, John. What's new on the list this week? Quite a lot, actually. The list is churning like the La Brea Tar Pits, bubbling (laughs) (laughs) all over the place. (laughs) On the fiction side, there are five new titles, um, starting down at number 15. Olin Steinhauer has a new spy novel. This one's kind of a cold case spy novel called All the Old Knives, new at number 15. At number 13, J.A. Jantz continues her Allie Reynolds series. That's about an ex-broadcast journalist uh, who was cut loose for aging and now gets involved in uh, various thriller mystery plots. (laughs) The 10th book of that series is called Cold Betrayal, and it's new at number 13. Then at number 8, the noted Boston crime novelist Dennis Lehane, who Mm -hmm. no longer lives in Boston. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. Where does he live? Uh, He moved to Southern California about a year and a half ago. Wow. Uh, His biography says that he splits his time now between (laughs) Southern California and Boston. He recently told The Hollywood Reporter that he missed the entire winter in Boston and was kind of bummed about that since they had record snowfall. He wanted a piece of that action. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. He wanted to claim his inheritance. Exactly. Tough it out. (laughs) It's so funny because I associate him so strongly with that city that it's funny to think of him anywhere else, especially California. Yeah. um, He said that all his friends were kind of bragging about um, the snowfall (laughs) and and one part of him thought, what sick bastards they are. And and another part of him thought, well, I'm jealous I'm not there. (laughs) He's got a new novel called World Gone By, also not set in Boston. Uh, This, I believe, concludes a trilogy. It certainly continues a series of historical thrillers featuring the gangster and um, former police officer Joe Coughlin. This book is set mostly in uh, the Tampa area in Florida and also in Cuba. Hmm. That's new at number eight. Then at number six, um, Debbie McComer. Uh, has a standalone novel called Last One Home. It's a standalone, but it's still uh, as comforting and cozy as you'd expect from someone whose Cedar Cove series was picked up as a show by the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) That's new at number six. And finally, um, at number three, C.J. Box continues his Joe Pickett um, series set in Montana with a thriller called Endangered. A lot of very familiar names new to the fiction list. Yes. People who have been there before. <laughs> yes. Uh, and what about on nonfiction? Nonfiction, um, also some familiar names, starting down at number 15 with Andrew Morton. He's the British biographer known for kind of tabloidy, trashy fare. Uh, he did a book on Diana. He's done unauthorized biographies of Tom Cruise and Angelina Jolie. Um, he's got 
a book called 17 Carnations, which is a look back at the Duke of Windsor and Wallace Simpson and their relations with the Nazis. Hmm. Then at number 10, the social scientist Robert D. Putnam has a book called Our Kids. It's uh, looking specifically at the effect of in- income inequality on children and how it's um, creating a gap in opportunities. Then at number nine, um, George Hodgman, uh, who used to be an editor, a book editor at Simon & Schuster, also a magazine editor at Vanity Fair uh, and various other places, has a book called Bettyville. Betty is his mother in Paris, Missouri. She is in her 90s now. And when um, George Hodgman went to visit her a few years ago when she was 91, he found that she was really in failing health. Mm -hmm. Uh, She had signs of dementia. And um, he had just lost his job. And he decided to stay with her down in Paris, Missouri um, and take care of her. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's partly a book about that. It's Very much also a book about um, small-town Missouri. George Hodgman is a gay man, and his mother has never really accepted that and um, still really won't come to terms with that or even acknowledge it. So it's it's partly about that dynamic, what it's like for a gay man in his uh, 50s or 60s to be returning to the small town where he grew up um, with its prejudices. um, Yeah, and to still be confronting those things. And his very close relationship uh, with his really charming and kind of uh, eccentric mother, um, but mm. that has this kind of fraught element yeah, to it. It's funny. So they're very close, but there's this underlying sort of silence about something really important. Yeah. And in some ways, this book calls to mind another, an earlier bestseller, um, Will Schwalbe's End of Your Life Book Club, which was also about his relationship with his dying mother. Right. Um, he's also a former book editor and um, and a gay man. Um, although uh, that was not so much an issue in his relationship with, with yeah. his mother. A lot of overlap in those books. It's uh, one of those, if if you liked this, you might like this. And it seems <laughs> like people liked both, both yeah, of the lists. So exactly it's, it's popular. Right. Then at number three, a memoir by Stuart Scott, who you uh, may remember was an ESPN anchor. He died in January of cancer. Just before he died, he had finished this memoir about his battle against cancer. It's called Every Day I Fight, and it's written with Larry Platt. That's new at number three. Uh, new at number one this week, it, making its debut right at the top, and this was just a question of when that would happen, <laughs> Eric Larson's new book, Dead Wake, which is a um, look back at the Lusitania sinking. And Eric Larson, of course, famous for The Devil in the White City and other kind of historical narratives. Yeah, he's really got the magic touch. I mean, he's someone who now it seems like readers just trust to tell a great story because every time he publishes a book, no matter what the subject is, it kind of goes right to the top of the list. Yeah, that's right. Great. Thanks a lot, Greg. Thanks, John. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. 